This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. This is the latest episode of the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Rental Street. From race to adventure, custom to late and naked, look no further than Rental Street for handlebars, clip-ons, chains, and sprockets. We're clothed, partially that is, by Fly Racing as well, so a big thanks to those guys. Check out the website for a full range of street riding gear, not just off-road. My name is Adam Wheeler. I'm joined by the venerable David Emmett. Hello, David. Hello, Adam. And Mr. Neil Morrison, who's still in the process of packing for the Grand Prix of Portugal. Neil, are you almost ready? Pretty much as ready as can be with one day to go. I booked my flight earlier today, so everything's <laughs> uh, kind of returned to its norm. Um, but yeah, lastminute.com over here, but we're ready to go. I love this. This never, never change. Please, never change. <laughs> and I'm delighted to say that we're joined on this podcast by uh, Mr. Dennis Noyes, all the way from Southern California. Hello, Dennis. Hello. How are you guys doing? Very well, very well. Uh, we're getting ready, of course, for another back-to-back in uh, MotoGP land. First, we're going to Portimao in Portugal and then to Jerez in Spain, a circuit I'm sure, Dennis, you know all about. I um, mean, you must have seen some changes and maybe not so many changes all the way through the years. We'll get to that later on in the podcast. But uh, first of all, let's talk about Portimao. I think this is the fifth visit we've had in the last couple of years. Uh, we had a back-to-back last year and then we've seen Fabio Quattararo uh, and Miguel Oliveira take victories in the past. Am I right, Neil? You're looking at me strangely. Yeah, it's the fourth one, I think. Yeah, we the had fourth. two last. No, it's the fifth one because we had the back to back in. Um, uh, did we have? No, we didn't have the back to back. We just had the the single race in 2020, and then uh, uh, a race at the start and at the end of 2021. So yeah, it's uh, it's all becoming a bit of a blur. Yeah, the fourth visit. Here we are, the pillars of motorcycle journalism. <laughs> uh, the fourth. <laughs> Uh, the fourth Grand Prix. But like we said, you know, um, guys, my first thought is, how, how are we feeling about this weekend? Because we've seen a KTM win, we've seen a Ducati win, we've seen a Yamaha win. Uh, this is not a track, and I'm not going to say the bloody roller coaster, even though I just did. Uh, you know, I was, thinking of, I was thinking of you about that. Now, we don't call it a roller coaster in Spanish, do we? No. It's the, uh, it's the Montaña Rusa, which is inappropriate at these times. That's a Russian mountain. <laughs> Yeah. And the chances of that being conquered, Dennis, are, are quite slim. But um, yeah, Montaña Rusa, I never really understood that in Spanish. Obviously named after a certain, certain particular type no, of roller coaster. But, you it's know, what we call a roller coaster, yeah. Right. Well, let's move swiftly on. Um, you know, are we, you know, considering the vast kind of disparity we have in MotoGP this year, are we kind of favoring any particular team, rider or brand this weekend? I think, I don't think this weekend makes a great deal of sense. This weekend is just... Um, Portimao is still too much of an anomaly. It's a very new track. It's a very unique track because of the road. Oh, I nearly said it. Sorry there. Um, it's a very up and down track uh, because th- there's lots and lots of elevation track. It's absolutely spectacular. It's wonderful uh, circuit. It's a great place to to actually undulating, sort of- Dave. Undulating. undulating. Oh, but it's more than undulating. There's sort of undulations, and then there's like you know. Mugello is undulating, but this is a uh, this is it's proper um, all over the place. Um, and again, I don't think there's enough. It's a very unique track, and I don't think there's enough data. I don't think the teams have enough data to truly understand it. I I still think the circuit start the 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 season 
proper starts in Jerez once we get to a uh, a track where everyone has 12 million laps and you know to the sun and back several times in kilometers yeah i think uh, i think we sh- the first time i went to Puerto Mao was with the world superbikes and even before that uh with uh, spanish uh, riders going over there to uh, to practice so um you know that when they first opened the racetrack, the only problem was that the road that went to the racetrack had a had a bridge over it that was too low for any of the vehicles to pass. So that created a certain problem for World Superbike and Flamini, but they solved it that day. Yeah, because I, I remember the first time I went to Portimao was because uh, that was where I met you, I think, because uh, that was my first race as a, prof- a professional journalist. And I remember they only opened the ray, the, the big road on the Sunday morning. And so I remember being stuck behind some goats at some point. Um, there was driving in like on a, on a Saturday morning and it was, you know, sort of seven o'clock or eight o'clock, whatever it was. And uh, there was a, a goat herder sort of herding his goats across the uh, across the road. And, you know, when there's several hundred goats all you can do is sit there and wait for it and it was quite um uh, it, that was my abiding memory but it's you know it's a fantastic track one thing to remember is that when mark marquez was recovering um he went there and he's he's been there uh several times a couple of times anyway on once on a 600 and another time on a uh, basically a, a super bike so it isn't that he doesn't know this place i mean this is where he came back uh to a kind of mediocre seventh place but uh you know he's he's going to be loaded for bear this time do you think it's a weekend as well where miguel Oliveira really loves the event coming to town or maybe partially dreads it i mean i hear that he's doing a a pretty cool pre-event on wednesday uh i think this podcast will go out before then so if anybody is in the region with their motorcycle and heads to downtown portamao uh, I believe Oliveira is going to be leading a troop of riders to the circuit on his RC16. So riding a MotoGP bike on the road should be interesting, considering there's no radiators to keep it cool. Uh, <laughs> of course, I'm sure he'll have some appropriate tires on there, but then he'll take all the riders for a lap of the circuit. But that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to pressure and expectation. And we know the Portuguese fans are typically passionate. Uh, and, you know, he's the sole focus of all that. Difficult to know what sort of track Portimao is and which bike and which rider it sort of suits. I think from the three visits, the three previous visits we've had, you know, Ducati's been on the podium each time. Um, they were pretty dominant the last time as well with Banyaya. But like with Oliveira, he was so good when we first went there in 2020. But last year, it was nothing short of a disaster on both occasions for him and to an extent KTM. Um, you know, Yamaha looked good, I think, on two visits there. But then we went there at the end of last year and Quartararo had his worst race of the season. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a few question marks still about the competitiveness of, of those two factories in particular. Um, you do expect Ducati to be fairly strong there, um, just on, on on kind of recent evidence at the at that track. And as Dennis said, you know, you can never count out Mark coming off uh, all action, brilliant ride through the field in, in Cota. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's going to be interesting, wide open. Um, and I guess like previous occasions at this track a lot of it is going to be down to qualifying because it's uh you know it, it, we haven't had a classic model gp race there um and it can be quite difficult to to overtake um allowing some people to get a bit of a head of steam up front so um yeah i think you know yamaha's in particular pretty much like we're gonna we're gonna see everywhere this year you know saturday is going to be one of the most crucial sessions of the of the weekend if not the most 
Yeah, and of course, grip levels are going to be key. Um, Dave, Yamaha, um, Yamaha, MotoGP are switching around the agenda um, again this weekend. You know, we'll see Moto3 out first compared to being last like in Austin. Um, and then we have the, obviously the MotoGP race and then Moto2. I mean, is that going to have any effect, do you think, on preparation for the MotoGP guys in terms of grip level, the amount of rubber on the track? And normally it's good because the MotoGP guys aren't, aren't riding around on uh, you know thick smears of Dunlop Moto2 rubber because the Moto2 bikes, they're much heavier, much more powerful. They put a lot more rubber down on the road. The, the Moto3 bikes, they're still only, what are they, 65, 70 kilos, something like that. Very uh, narrow tires. They, they are not putting lots and lots of rubber down. Um, so I think it's going to be much more of a... It, Basically, practice will be, or conditions in the race will be much closer to practice in uh, to conditions in practice, and that makes everyone's job a lot easier, especially bikes which are sensitive to grip. And I was just going through sort of you know quotes and notes from last year uh, about the grip at the track, and it it it's it's not a very high grip track, which I think is going to penalise the Yamahas a little bit. And I think Fabio Quartararo's sort of championship defense is getting off to a fairly tough start. And I think it's going to be not really until Jerez that he sort of, they can get, get his steam up. And also just looking at the conditions, it looks like it's going to rain on Friday, in which case, you know, it, it, everything's, it, it, we're all off again anyway. Everything's off. You've looked at notes from last year, Dave. That sounds like far too much preparation for this podcast. I'm going to have to uh, check your temperature later on when we meet next week. Uh, Dennis, what's your what's your take so far on MotoGP this year, and why we've seen you know these wildly varying results? I mean, just uh, from your knowledge and your opinion, what have you made of the the season launch? Well, I don't think anybody was going to predict that uh, that Bignaya was going to be sitting at this point in the season uh, where he is in the points and where he is in results. Uh, and and Bastianini, we watched him at the end of last season. We said nice things about him, but no one expected him to be leading the championship at this point. My question is whether whether we have to take Bastianini seriously all the way or not now. Is he is this a lead like, um, like Maverick Vinales had in 2017 when after four races he was he was right up there in front with two wins? Uh, or is Ducati going to manage with the factory bikes to go back to the front? And something that I just saw, you guys might have seen it in Barcelona. I think Jorge Lorenzo just made a statement or, or a comment in the press the other day that he believes Jorge Martin has already signed uh, with Ducati. And uh, he said if he hasn't, uh, he should have because things are looking difficult for him now. I saw that and I, I wasn't sure because he did say, I believe. So, you know, how much does that mean that he knows for certain or does that mean that he he, he thinks he should have already? It was a it was a little bit a little bit ambiguous. So, yeah, with it being with it being Jorge, I doubt that he's talking to Dominicali every evening on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. No, I mean, the, 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 certainly they, they seem to have a uh, a lot of. Uh, you know they have a lot of choice there but for Bastianini for me the question is do well would Ducati let a a satellite especially the 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 what are they the, the third tier or second tier depending on how you look at it um 
satellite squad. They're not the factory, you know, they're not the factory squad. They're not the the the, the junior factory team, which is Pramac. Uh, they're the third team, and they and it's a twenty one bike. Obviously, it's much easier. There's all this data on the twenty one bike, so it's much easier to get the thing sorted. The thing is actually, you know, we know it works, um, and it was a very good bike last year, and it's a very good bike this year as well. So it must be easier for them. But do do would Ducati let um, Bastianini win, or do they throw all of their weight behind the factory? riders i think it's quite interesting you look at um you look at the championship now bastian is leading but i think it's with the lowest points total after four motor gp races since the current point scoring system began in 1993 um so you know there has been it's not like it's been a dominant romp it's more due to the sort of circumstances you feel that um you know no one's really been able to be that consistent so far um but that's not taking anything away from him i still think he's been absolutely incredible so far um also interesting, I think Ducati have been on the podium with at least one bike in the last 10 races, but you don't really have that impression that things are going so brilliantly well for them. You know, obviously, Bastianini is leading the championship, but it's a year-old bike. Um, I mean, can we say with some certainty that Banyaya and Martin will be up there fighting at the front this weekend? I mean, I don't think we can, despite Banyaya's form at this track a year ago. There still seems to be a lot of things going on there with the bike and things that they're testing and, and maybe putting in and taking away that are upsetting his kind of flow. Um, and we've mentioned it in previous pods, how Banyaya this year hasn't really appeared to be content and and, and chilled. Um, we saw that very evidently in, in Argentina. Um, but I think it's quite similar to the first half of last year where, yes, Ducati was always at the front, but it was always a different one. You had Zarco, you had Martin, you had Banyaya, you had Miller, but none of them were consistent. And it's almost like the same thing is happening this year with the exception of Bastianini. Yeah, but no, I think you made the point in the last podcast that, you know, we have to wait to see until Ducati really refine the 2022 bike. Um, at the moment, Bastianini's a fantastic rider, but I think it's the bike that's excelling. You know, it's, it's in the perfect position combined with Bastianini's skill to preserve tires. That's what's really, you know, helped him forge that consistency we've seen so far. So I do wonder maybe after the Jerez test, uh, you know, when Ducati have a chance to really try and make that package a bit smoother, you know, if they'll be able to try and find the same sort of form for their factory guys as they did towards the end of uh, 2021. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's clear that Ducati's biggest problem is a lack of testing because we had so little testing, so little pre-season testing. Uh, you know, it's basically a day and a half at Sepang before it started to rain. And then we went to Mandalika. Mandalika was weird. And then we've had all of these strange conditions at races uh, throughout the season. And, you know, even that's why I say I'm not convinced that Portimao is going to teach us very much specifically because it's still a bit of an outlier. It is not a it's not a track with relatively new. Yeah, it's relatively new and it's relatively uh, unique with all of those um, undulating roller coaster action. <laughs> you bastard and one of the one thing you know that is a contrast to last year last year i was saying that ducati couldn't really get one rider consistently up at the front all the while quartararo was running away with it at the front but that isn't happening this year you know quartararo struggled suzuki have been good but they haven't been in brilliant they haven't seen them win a race yet Tranmere still hasn't been on the podium, I don't think. So um, this year, at least, and, and of course, Mark has had his issues. So this year, at least for Ducati and the factory guys and Martin as well, um, you know, there's not someone going out of sight at the moment. Well, if you're Ducati and you haven't won a championship since Casey Stoner, and he wasn't the rider you wanted to sign in the first place that year, he was like third choice uh, that the factory was, was, was looking for a rider. You haven't won 
Now you've got a guy leading, you really have to be careful because remember the last time they had a guy who just started to step up, they had just let him know that he was fired right before he began winning, Jorge Lorenzo. I mean, Ducati really haven't been, really haven't had a good season in a championship since Stoner, but prior to that, back in the 50s with one, two, fives, there was a time when there were five Ducatis taking the top five positions in a race, but you know, not in modern times and not with the big bike. So I think Ducati right now are just sitting back saying, what if Bagnaia doesn't score uh, well in the next two races? Everything that we can bolt on to that 2021 bike off the 2022, uh, you know, and he's got a crew over there that's a full factory Ducati crew, so they can go either way. I think for them, it's more important to win a championship right now than it is to keep some uh, computer company in China happy. Dennis, the um, the penultimate American champion, of course, was uh, you know Roberts Jr. on the Suzuki, who came very close to you know winning in Estoril, uh, you know, in a very memorable Grand Prix, um, you know, in two thousand and six. David and I sorted that out just before the recording, so we do put a little bit of preparation into this podcast. Um, what's your current take on the Suzuki boys? Because you know, obviously, Dram Mir, world champion in two thousand and twenty, but you know, they seem to have, like Neil said, they're not super competitive, but they have the consistency so far, and Alex Rins in particular. Seems like a, a rejuvenated man. You remember the day that Rins beat Jorge, beat uh, Marquez, not just once, but twice at Silverstone in the same day because he had the laps mixed up. So and he made his corner. pass. Yeah, on the last corner, he made the pass on the last lap and beat Marquez. And then he realized, oh, the race isn't over yet. I'll have to do it again. And Marquez was looking for him on the outside and he came up the inside. The thing about the Mar Marquez, I mean, Rins came up on him. The thing about uh, Rins and his crashes is the way Rins rides. If the if the leader in the race is going faster than his bike can go, he crashes. But if his bike is competitive, he's he's right there. And Mir, we've already seen him steady, finishing races, scoring points, and he's got in in his bag of tricks. He remembers how he won the last one. And the Suzukis, they're faster than the Yamahas by a lot now. So uh, I think the Suzuki's are going to come on strong from here through the uh, next three races. Yeah, and uh, Juan Mir six six four four, which is you know incredibly consistent. You know, it's, it, it it needs to be up a little bit, but uh, yeah, they. I think the Suzuki's to me are the most interesting prospect. Yeah, I think that um, it hasn't been anything. Well, I guess you know Rins. Rins' ride in Austin was spectacular. Um, it hasn't been anything jaw-dropping just yet, but you get the sense that they're coming. And we've had four strange races, and those guys have been pretty intelligent with how they've ridden. Um, and also, I think, crucially, what we've seen in the last two races, um, you know, in the first race in, in Qatar, um, Mir was quite downbeat because they basically didn't have that sort of push at the end of the race that they had through... 2020 they, they kind of had the impression that their rivals had, had been able to catch up in terms of how they manage the tires that used to be suzuki's big advantage but we have seen in the last two races um you know rins and mir coming towards the front uh, in the final five six laps the fastest guys on track so that was a, a massive weapon in their armory um previously and um it looks as though they've kind of found a base setting where they can maybe utilize that as well now. well last year Last year, Neil was so shaky and so uh, worrying for Alex Rins, you know, that um, I'm still trying to recover from the fact that I've been toppled from the 
the very peak of the fantasy league team uh, for our <laughs> podcast. And I, I, I think that is mainly down to the fact that I don't believe in Alex Rins and I didn't slot him in my team for Austin and uh, I've been pointed out. So the rain has, the mini rain has come to an end, you know, like Liverpool football club, your dear Liverpool, you know, there's a, there's a time when you're at the top and you, you know, you're the big dog and everyone's trying to take a, you know, a bite out of you. And uh, I've toppled down to, I think, fifth place now. So I'm going to have to reassess things this weekend and maybe put Rinzi in. But um, anyway, we'll, we'll, you're gonna <laughs> we'll get put back Rinzi to the... in, You're going to put Rinzi in and give him the commentator's curse so he's certain to crash out, sort of probably out of second place just as he tries to pass someone. I'm, I'm not going to put him in, Dave. It's a bit of reverse psychology. That's just, uh, you know... <laughs> Anyway, we're going to take a quick break here on the Paddock Pass podcast. When we get back, we're going to talk to Dennis about his remarkable uh, connection as well with um, motorcycle racing, not only you know worldwide and in the United States, but also in Spain. So join us then. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders, and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, Dennis, it's great to have you on at this time, um, just before we head to Portugal and then straight to Spain. Uh, you, your knowledge of, of motorcycle racing, MotoGP, is obviously enormous. Um, but in particular, you have a special link you know, with Spain. Uh, you're fluent in Spanish. Um, how did that all come about, you know, for, for a guy from, from the United States, California? Well, I'll tell you, I knew absolutely nothing about motorcycles. I had never ridden a motorcycle. I was like 26 years old when I got to Barcelona. I was teaching English in the Institute of North American Studies on the Via Augusta. I had a classroom that sat right out over the street, and there was a stoplight there. And when I had the uh, late evening session, there was every stoplight. I'm talking about 1967. Every stoplight when it changed was like a start of a Grand Prix. There were Osas and Montesas, <laughs> Tacos, Lobitos. And once in a while, there'd be some guy in a suit with his tie flying behind him, uh, helmetless, of course, riding a, a Norton Atlas or something like that, who would clear off and leave those guys behind. And my students, particularly the young students, they all had their motorcycles parked downstairs and they were all talking about Angel Nieto and Santiago Herrero, uh, you know, and, and, and Grand Prix racing. And it just, took me away. It just swept me away because I'd, I'd raced cars in America, but dirt track cars in the Midwest, you know, uh, uh, flat trackers. And I'd quit that. I'd, I'd actually sworn on the family Bible if they would pay my tuition to the University of Michigan that I would never race a motorcycle again. And I didn't say I'm not a motorcycle, a car. And I'd never said anything about motorcycles. And I tell you, Spain, if you liked racing uh, and, you know, car racing, motorcycle racing, I was from a car racing background. It just swept you away. It, it, they've said, a lot of people say that until Nieto won in 71, that Spain really hadn't noticed. That's not true. The kids were noticing. And in the, all the garages, there were the posters up and people talking about it. Dennis, being in Barcelona, you, you must have had a, a connection or you must have been to Montjuic Park. I mean, Neil and I live here and, you know, I've done a feature on, on the old track. Of course, the old Formula One course that used to host the, uh, the endurance races. Our Benjamin Grau was like a legendary name and figure um, taking victories in that event. Um, did you ever go up to the hill? Did you, you know, have much contact with it? I've been around the hill about a thousand times because I rode that 24-hour race five times 
And uh, actually, am I allowed to say this? I won the Spanish Endurance Racing Championship the last time it was run at Monshuic. There, got that. <laughs> when was that? Was that early 80s? Uh, that was 1984. That was the yeah. year that the race ended. Uh, there was a fatality, uh, uh, and, and I remember they called us in while the race was going on. They called us all into a meeting. It was my team, so I was like team director. And they called us in and told us that, uh, uh, you know, uh, Mingo Pares had been killed. And did we want to continue with the race or not? And I remember we all looked at each other like it didn't occur to anybody to stop. And everybody said, what would Mingo want to do? He'd want to go ahead and race. Yeah. The first race I ever went to, though, to watch a Grand Prix, I didn't even know what a Grand Prix was. I went to Munchwick <laughs> in 68. Uh, I was looking the wrong way on the first lap. And the bikes came from the other direction. That's how much I knew about it. And, and uh, Phil Reed and Bill Ivey in the 125 race were hating each other a lot that year, and they pushed each other so hard they both blew up. And Salvador Canellas became the first Spaniard ever to win a Grand Prix on a TSS Bull Taco 125. And I watched the celebration, and I thought, these guys are celebrating like they never won a race before. I didn't realize it was the first win for Spain. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dennis, how, how you kind of mentioned that story. Was that Did that inspire you to start racing yourself did that inspire you to start working in the in the grand prix paddock in a, in a capacity of a, of a journalist well now how was i going to work in the grand prix paddock in the capacity of a journalist when the first you know i didn't know anything about it what happened was this guy named jaime Algasuari, who was starting a magazine in spain called solo moto heard about me through the institute like there was this gringo over there who who kind of liked motorcycles and spoke fair to middle in Spanish at that time. So he got me to translate articles for him. I think the first translation I ever did was a road test of a songless 500, a uh, big, terrible piece of iron. And as a result of translating Agasuari, I thought, um, I'll just take a crack at this myself. And turned out I could write, you know, over the years in Spanish. Had you been writing in English before that? I mean, apart from sort of teaching it as language, but you didn't have a background in journalism at all. It was... Uh... Well, uh, <laughs> I had worked uh, for the Caracas Daily Journal down in Venezuela, but that wasn't... I didn't go to Venezuela to work for the Caracas Daily Journal. I went to teach English with a letter of recommendation from the ambassador. But when I got there, the ambassador had been thrown out of the country for being a pedophile. And the association <laughs> didn't favor me. So I decided not to follow up on that one. And so I went to a newspaper called the Caracas Daily Journal, the only English language newspaper in South America. And they didn't have a job for me. They left my phone number and said, call me if something happens. And they had a bomb go off in there and killed a couple of members of the staff the night that night. And then they hired me the next day. So that got me started in journalism. That's quite a, this is quite a start really sort of, you know, can you come in and, and, and sub in for our murdered colleagues sort of thing? So, yeah. <laughs> Dennis, when um, recently in the last Grand Prix, of course, there was a 500th Grand Prix celebration or, or um, commemoration, I guess, of you know the, the association between Dorna, Erta, MSMA, and the FIM. Um, it was an era, of course, that started in '92. Dorna Sports are based in Spain, you know, in between offices in Madrid and Barcelona. What was your take when you know the the championship had that very kind of Spanish flavor and, and they started to build it up? Well, you know, I was I was in Dorna uh, from the very beginning. Uh, in fact, I've still got some cards around here that list me as vice president in charge of Grand Prix promotion, which I was for a while until I decided I couldn't stand to stay inside an office. So I was I was I watched Dorna from the very beginning. Um, 
I'll tell you one thing, Carmelo Espeleta, if he hadn't come into Dorna, I don't think any of this would have happened because uh, Bernie Ecclestone had his uh, foot on the throat of the uh, Dorna company, who were a bunch of uh, businessmen from Galicia uh, who had seen this as a good investment and it jumped into it, but there was just no knowledge of racing behind it. And they hired, they hired Carmelo. And from there on, uh, you know, he was a automobile racing guy and motorcycle racing guy all his life. That's really what uh, turned it around, got it going. I was so proud to see that 500th uh, race because I remember the first one was in Japan. Uh, there were a dozen of us. It was Carmelo's dozen, they called it, La Docena de Carmelo. Uh, and we didn't even have an office. The Japanese didn't take us seriously. Uh, so we were all operating out of a commentator's booth. Uh, that was the only office Dorna had. And we didn't know what was going on. It was raining. It was terrible. Do you, um, do you put a lot of Dorna's success in the way that they've been able to build up MotoGP down to Carmelo? I mean, my wife, she, she works for Dorna um, and she, she loves the guy. I mean, she thinks he's, you know, a fantastic diplomat or, or ambassador, you could say, for the sport and the, and the company. I mean, he, should, should he get more plaudits than he does for the way that he's progressed the series, the business, the tracks, the safety, everything else? Carmelo, um, he's, a, he's a great negotiator. Uh, he also knows he's, he's what I call a Spanish boss. He told me one time when I first went there, he said, now you're going to hear me yelling at people on occasion. Uh, he said, but you know, I have to be a jefe espanol. I have to be a Spanish boss. Uh, you know, I've got the authority. I've got to use it. So I listen and then I say, okay, yeah, I heard everything you said. We're not doing any of that. (laughs) (laughs) But when you went to Japan that first time was, um, that was already after you'd take, or after Donna had taken over the organization of the whole series from the FIM, right? So you were uh, you were by then actually running the entire series. Because, like to me, one of the biggest changes that that, that happened was that going from you know people queuing for their uh, for their start money after every race um, to actually being professionalized and the teams getting paid and everyone getting paid. Well. Actually, Bernie Ecclestone still had a strong hand in the championship in 1992. The race director was an appointment of his. Many of the contracts were contracts that he had done. Um, So until Carmelo and Bernie sat down in Tom Wilkinson's little house at the end of the straightaway in Donington in 92, and I remember Bernie, Carmelo told me, Bernie said, look, this isn't going to work, Carmelo. I don't delegate and I can't go to all the races. And my people are completely loyal to me. Uh, you won't have authority if my people are at, at, the, uh, at some of the racetracks. So look, let's just sit down, figure out what this is worth. And either, either you buy it from me or I buy it from you. And that's when, uh, and of course, at that time, Dorna was in financial trouble in Spain. Uh, they were barely able to come up with a loan, but they, they bought it. Um, and, and really, uh, Irta wanted, Irta didn't trust Dorna in the beginning. Why would they? They didn't know who they were. They were just a company that came out of nowhere. Uh, I remember I was at the Congress in Budapest in 90 at the FIM Congress when they announced that a company called Dona Promotion del Deporte had bought the world's championship. And no, and everybody was just looking around saying, who are these guys? And uh, Flamini uh, was trying to get the, uh, the purchase thrown out and asking permission to make another bid. Long time ago. 
Can I just go back to this, the history of Spanish racing again? Because you were talking about, you know, teaching and staring out the window and seeing all these little butacos and, and osas and all the rest of it. Um, the Spanish were always really strong in the smaller classes at first, and it wasn't until Alex Crivier uh, that they started getting any real success in the in, in the bigger classes. Um, that, As I understand it, that all started under basically General Franco. It was because he was trying, it was, it was a case of protectionism where it was, you know, the, the, the Spanish were only building the, 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 the smaller bikes. Is this, is that right? That's right. Um, we, we had a system of protectionism so that no Japanese bikes, at least Italian and German bikes came into the country, but uh, no Japanese bikes. But that allowed uh, Osa Maltesa, Boltaco, Lube uh, to continue building. And they were racing people, particularly the ones in Catalonia and Barcelona, Boltaco, Osa Maltesa. Well, Montesa came first and then Boltaco grew out of it. But um, there was racing Long before Angel Nieto started winning Grand Prix, uh, the Spanish championship was a big deal. Everybody knew the names of the Spanish champions. Uh, there was a guy named Ramon Torres who was on the podium a couple of times in 250, and then he hit a tree in Comaruga uh, when he was uh, actually contending for the 250 World Championship back in, uh, I think it was 67. So, uh, you know, uh, there was strong background, strong interest in the Grand Prix, strong interest among the unconditional fans, the hardcore fans. Uh, I mean, but how how did it? Um, well, how did Spain come to run racing? Basically, I mean, it's, I mean, obviously uh, Dorna, but how did they come to rule racing? If you look at if you look at the way Spain was uh, during the the sixties, it was kind of a pariah nation. It didn't really feel like Europe. It felt more like I don't know some third world country. It was a military dictatorship, and Spain was looking for a certain kind of respectability. They got that with Santana winning Wimbledon in tennis, and then when Nieto won the World Championship, the powers that be decided we better promote this sport because this guy and this sport can be ambassadors for for Spain. Because also there was, I mean, like we know that the king, uh, Juan Carlos, was a big, big, still is, I think, a big, big racing fan. Did he basically take over from Franco and say, you know, I still want this to be a thing? How much of a role did he actually play? Well, he played a big role because he was very active in the uh, Royal Auto Club. Uh, his, uh, uh, it was his cousin, uh, the Marques de Cubas, was the president of the RAC. And... Uh, you know, there's a, there, I can tie it up real quick with just one thing. How Carmelo got into the whole ball game, why Bernie Ecclestone respected Carmelo and sold and finally decided to sell the company to him. Remember back in 1980? No, you don't remember back in 1980. There was a Formula One battle between FISA and FOCA between Ecclestone and Jean uh, Balestre. And the Spanish championship round, world championship at Harama was under threat because uh, Balestre was going to stop the race because uh, fines hadn't been paid by some of the riders. Forget the details. Juan Carlos stepped in and told Carmelo, uh, this race happens. Regardless of what the Federation says, this race happens. And what happened was the, uh, the uh, Federation officials from the World Federation, Balestre's people, tried to stop the race as they were pulling the 
machines out onto the track. And this is the first time Bernie Ecclestone ever saw Carmelo Espelete. He saw him speaking to the Guardia Civil. He saw the Guardia Civil with machine guns go out onto the track, arrest the <laughs> guy from the Federation, put him in the back of a Land Rover, and then roll the window down just to crack so he wouldn't suffocate. And I remember <laughs> Ecclestone said, when I saw that, I thought, I could use a man like that. <laughs> Well, I'm sure the uh, the former king can still keem up with motorcycle racing from whatever tax-free uh, domicile he's currently in. But uh, now we're going to um, switch between a siesta and a sangria for our latest uh, little lab break, and we'll be back right after this. Renthal Fat Bars are synonymous with off-road world champions. The Renthal Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28mm handlebar in a range of street-specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise, or sweep of your handlebar, Renthal Street Handlebars offer a bend to suit your requirements. Use the WorksFit Handlebar Comparison Tool at Renthal.com to find the perfect bend. Welcome back to the final installment of the Paddock Pass podcast. It's been great reminiscing about some of the old days of Grand Prix racing and motorcycle racing. Dennis, I mean, your knowledge of, um, you know, what the Spaniards have done uh, in, the, in a long, glorious history, especially in recent decades, is, is fantastic. But what did you make of the whole golden era, you know, the wave when these spectacular American racers started coming across and dominating Grand Prix? How, how did you feel about that after having such a, a, a close touch point with some of the Spanish stars of the sport? Well, the Americans came over in the class that the Spaniards weren't racing in. And it was really, I mean, the American riders, everybody in Spain had a favorite cowboy. Uh, they were rooted for, you know, Pons, Garriga, you know, whoever it was in 250, Aspar, Nieto, Tormo. Uh, but in the big class, the Spaniards just loved that whole approach of these guys coming over and saying things off the cuff. Uh, you know, Kenny Roberts refusing to accept his trophy and Harama handing the trophy back to the president of the Federation and saying, you keep it, you need the money more than I do. Uh, you know, right? uh, so everybody, like I said, everybody had a favorite American rider. Uh, Kevin Swans was more popular in Spain. I think he was as popular as Valentino Rossi became later. What about them? Um, you know, did you ever build any kind of connections with these guys? I mean, you know, Wayne Rainey, I mean, Swanson Rainey, their duels, of course. I mean, for me, a personal favorite was always Hockenheim. What a race that was. Uh, you know, what was it like to work with these guys compared to, I mean, we can talk about our experiences and we do on a weekly basis, um, you know, with the current MotoGP guys. What was it like, you know, dealing and talking and, and interviewing these kind of stars of the sport back in the late 80s, early 90s? Just remember, the one thing these guys were not accustomed to was being famous. I remember Wayne Rainey used to say, man, it is so great to get off that plane in Los Angeles and walk by people expecting them to ask me for an autograph and realizing they don't have the slightest idea who I am. Uh, and of course, I was the only American journalist who was covering the series, but I wasn't an American journalist. I was a Spanish journalist. So, I mean, Henry Ray Abrams was over there, uh, rest his soul, many years, but off and on, never for a full season. So basically, I was in the garage with Roberts and Rainey and, uh, you know, particularly with Roberts's outfit. I wasn't so close with Freddie because I think Freddie thought I always smelled a little bit like California, you know, for a Louisiana boy, too close <laughs> to Roberts. But, uh, but, you know, those, it, was, it was really good. And I learned not to publish, not to... If it wasn't on the record, don't use it because you heard so many things that, you know, that would have been just tremendous. 
but they weren't the sort of things that you could print. But they gave you a perspective on how these guys operated and how they thought. That has changed because, you know, I, I think the impression I get is that we modern journalists, if you like, have a lot less contact, direct contact with uh, with writers. Also because the, the, the structures are a lot more formalized and so... Everything goes through, um, you know. Everything goes through press offices, all the rest of it. It's it's not as common to have everyone's phone number, sort of thing. And and it's um, it just seems to be. Also, you know, we're not interviewing people in people's motorhomes because you know you were going around knocking on people's motorhomes doors and to to ask them questions instead of <laughs> instead of you know going and wandering into big hospitalities. I used to have breakfast, you know, sometimes with Wayne, sometimes with Barros, you know, different guys in their motorhomes. I remember Max Biaggi used to go over to have a cup of coffee with Barros in the morning. Um, and I asked Barros, here comes Biaggi knocking at the door. What's he want? And he said, oh, he always comes over for coffee because he doesn't want me to knock him off on the brakes in the first corner. <laughs> <laughs> and one time, one, time I was having, one time I was having breakfast with Wayne and we were right next door to Eddie's Eddie Lawson's motorhome. They were almost identical Winnebago's. I didn't have much relation with Eddie. Nobody did really. I mean, you know, a little bit, but Eddie was the kind of guy you'd go, I used to go with Mike Scott and we'd knock on the door of the motorhome and the curtain would move very slightly and you'd see Eddie's head inside and Eddie would just shake his head. No, close the curtain and you would have no interview with Eddie that morning. And it, that's the way it was. And I, I was doing some stuff with TV at that time, needed to talk to Eddie, but couldn't get there. Talking to Wayne, I got called away for something. Wayne said, hurry back and finish this because I got to go out for, for practice. I went into the wrong motorhome. Yeah, you got to imagine this. I got the two motorhomes sitting side by side. Eddie Lawson sitting in there in his undershirt, eating his Wheaties with milk, you know, and I come bursting in the door and he looks up at me. Now, what the hell do I say? I said, Eddie, we can't go on like this. We've got to talk. I've, I've got an interview coming up. And, you, and he said, okay. It, and it just opened a new door. We stepped right outside the motorhome. Unfortunately, I didn't have a cameraman, so I had to call for one really quick. I was working with Donovan on walkie-talkie. But anyway, that's the way it was with the American guys. Uh, I remember driving through Downey one time um, when Wayne still lived in, in his folks' house, the house his folks had had before. And I was looking down the street and I saw Wayne, Wayne standing in shorts talking to the mailman out front of his house. And I thought I'll stop and talk to him. Then I thought, no, let's just let him be, you know, just Wayne. His neighbors didn't even really know what he did. And that's what he liked. You know, those guys could come home and just disappear. I remember Wayne saying it must just be terrible to be one of those Spanish or Italian guys. You can't even go downtown and get a cup of coffee without having people talking to you. Dennis, I've. I think I've read some accounts that you've uh, you've written or, or maybe you've spoken of in the past when you were talking about, I think, for example, uh, Harama 86. I remember you maybe writing about that and the, the race where Spencer was running away with it and then obviously had to retire with the, the issue with his wrist. And I'm just interested, you know, before you had a media center with, you know, the action live on screen, you know, you were out watching the race on track. And obviously, mm -hmm. if you were doing that you might not have picked up everything that was going on I just wonder you know to get a full idea of, of what happened every lap you know were you I guess you had to speak to lots of riders to get the full picture but also were you comparing notes to photographers journalists I mean how, how did you kind of get a, a full picture of, of what had happened that day when you were maybe only watching from one corner on the track or a couple of corners well um, 
you had to work with other journalists. Now, I had a teammate that was with me, Vic Monial from the mountains up around uh, Vic. Uh, and then there was also, um, you know, other journalists that we, that we knew, usually Italians, and we didn't have partial times. So we would put those guys on different corners around the track and they would take lap charts. And then otherwise you wouldn't have any idea who overtook who when. Uh, that was for a start. And then secondarily, of course, you had to go talk to the riders. Uh, I remember once starting an interview with Christian Cerrone and then he had to go out for practice, but we were gonna finish it. It was very important. He had a big crash in practice. Uh, and when I came back to him, he was concussed, but didn't know it. I mean, you know, we talk about concussion. Now, back in those days, concussion was almost just kind of amusing. You know what I mean? People, <laughs> I remember going back to talk to Christian. Christian knew me for years, but he saw me coming. I had a notebook in my hand and a pencil. He took the pencil out of my hand and wrote, best wishes, Christian Cerrone, and handed it back to me. <laughs> And Mike Baldwin once got lost, uh, went to sleep under a uh, uh, under a, under an awning, and didn't even make it to the podium at one of the races because of I think uh, I think that was a half a bottle of Cardinal Mendoza that he stole from Paul Butler and didn't realize how powerful it was. But I'm not sure about that. Dennis, I've got two questions from that era. Who was the the biggest pain in the ass to to work with, you know, as as a rider? And then who also was like a bit of a dream, always gave you good material. And the second one, who was kind of like the Gigi Delingle of that that era? I mean, were we talking like Earth Kanamoto or Warren Willing? I mean, who was the guy who was really kind of setting the benchmark on the, on the technical side? On the technical side, oh gosh, probably. Uh... Kel Carruthers, although he was an intuitive engineer, uh, you know, along with Kanemoto, but I mean, uh, yeah, he was, he was one of the guys who would uh, suddenly have an idea like, well, we've done it this way for a long time, let's do it another way now. Uh, and as far as the riders who were the easiest to get along with, I think the easiest for me to get along with was Kenny Roberts, uh, because he'd just say what he thought, you know, he'd say, fuck off. And, and you knew that wasn't a, not a good time to talk. But if you had to talk, you'd say, no, I'm not leaving. You know, I need this. Uh, and as a, a hard rider to work with, gosh, I hate to say it, but, you know, uh, Eddie Lawson was really just a, a, a pain uh, to work with because he really didn't want to be famous. He didn't want to be, you know, he just wanted to have his races and go home and have people leave him alone. Uh, and I understand that. But yeah, no, nobody explained that that was part of the job, though. I mean, or was it really? Well, part nobody, of the job, nobody explained that was part of the job. You know, I mean, uh, uh, yeah. Leo de Graffenried used to try and get Kenny to smile, and Kenny said, "I only smile when I'm happy, Leo. If you leave, I might smile." <laughs> uh, um, also, uh, Antonio, because I, I think you knew Antonio Cobas a little bit. That's, or, that's the name I was going to That's the name I should have said, Antonio Cobas. Yeah, because the most interesting thing to me is Cobas, because like my, my, so my uncle used to tune bikes in the 80s, and one of his bikes won the TT. Uh, and I've, I still talk to him a lot about that sort of thing. And like the only thing that he cared about was the bike would produce enough horsepower and stay in one piece those were like his two big design uh things and you know when you talk to him about handling or uh, that sort of thing it was just not really an issue and it seems to me like antonio cobas um seems to be the like one of the biggest 
influences in thinking about bike handling. You know, it's not just about how can we coax as much horsepower out of this thing, and then you know we'll sort the we'll sort the corners out when we when we get to them. Um, it was much more about actually sort of you know having a bike which would turn and stop and do all the rest of things. Yeah, Antonio was a was a front wheel guy. Uh, he understood just how much had to go into getting that rider to feel confident going into corners. And, you know, Eduardo Giro, the guy who built the uh, Osa monocasque machine that Santiago Guerrero nearly won the world's championship with, they were, uh, there was a difference in age between them, but there was an inter intermingling of ideas. There were some Spanish engineers back then, Cobus, the leading one, uh, uh, probably the Giro brothers, and Ramon Forcada, who's crew chief now with Dovizioso, was a young guy just coming on the scene back then. And used to, many times I'd see him just sitting, listening to these guys as they talk. Cobus really had trouble understanding the 500s at first. Uh, when Kenny Roberts came over, because until Roberts came over, people rode 500s as if they were big 250s. Um, and Roberts coming off the big mile dirt tracks and all those American riders, you know, they came off the dirt track. That's what they brought with them. Um, I remember talking to Cobus before Roberts came over and he was saying, well, what's so great about this guy? You know, I said, well, it's the way he rides the bike through the corners. He said, show me, draw it for me. So I drew a picture of what I thought Robert's rear wheel and front wheel would look like in a lineation coming out of the Bugatti hairpin in Harama. And he said, you're exaggerating. And then we went to Harama. He went to the corner. He watched. He came back and said, you didn't exaggerate enough. <laughs> <laughs> and that's good. That kind of uh, that group of, of Spaniards, Dennis, I guess, because Kobas worked with um, with Cito, uh, I guess, through the through the 80s and that was really when you saw Spanish riders um, start to come up through the classes and, and and really you know dominate not just the smaller classes but then you know in Cito's case make it all the way to the 500s and then Alex Crivier in the, the early 90s and Cito's team obviously taking Spain's first Premier Class win I mean that, that seemed to be a bit of a movement which really went right the way to the, the top of the sport. You know um one very interesting thing that you really gives you asked the question before about, you know, how, how was it before all the media was controlled? Uh, 1992, 1991, Alex Crivier was racing for Giacomo Agostini with Cavalora on that uh, 250 team, Marlboro. And he was having a pretty rough season. Uh, but Roberts was noticing. And we were in Italy. Uh, I think it was at uh, Musano. And Roberts, we were watching a foot race. I think there was a foot race organized between journalists. Uh, yeah, there was. You guys would enjoy that. We had a 100-yard dash between journalists. Uh, and uh, so I was just coming. I finished third. I was just coming off of that, and Roberts called me over because he wanted to watch journalists run because he said he, he wanted to say they must be able to do something because they sure as hell can't write. <laughs> so I, came, I was coming away from that. He said, hey, he said, you know that Creville kid? I said, yeah. He said, you tell him if he wants to ride my 500 at the Super Prestigio, that was the first race ever held at Catalunya, uh, the new racetrack. He said, if he wants to ride my bike, he can ride it. No papers signed, nothing. He just comes and rides the bike and then we'll talk. I mean, imagine an offer like that being made today. And I went to talk to Crivier and I said, hey, Robert says you can ride his bike if you want to. And Alex was just dumbfounded. And like within about 
15 days, he had signed a contract with Cito Pones. And I hope he got more money as a result of that. <laughs> but Roberts meant it. He would have put him on it uh, because Kaczynski was Kaczynski's future with that team was he was that was over. Uh, Wayne and John were not able to coexist. And uh, then Wayne was injured at the end of the season, didn't ride in Malaysia. And John was signed uh, to come and ride Superstigio. But that was the Roberts would have given Crivier Kaczynski's bike for that race. Um, why is motorcycle racing so concentrated in Catalonia in Spain? It's because, it, I mean, look, we talk about it being a Spanish sport and there are a sort of hot spots of, uh, of racing, but it, it seems to be so totally concentrated in, 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 in Catalonia. Why is that? That's why Angel Nieto had to jump on a train when he was 14 years old and ride over to Barcelona so he could continue, you know, to ride motorcycles and race. Barcelona was where the factories were. Mm. It's where the, the big families were, Permanier, Bolto, uh, you know, uh, that, that's where the action was. Dennis, it's been fantastic having you on the podcast. Um, from what we understand, you, you've got your own podcast going. What's, what's the title or what's that about? That's uh, Finta Americana, which is, Finta Americana is Spanish for duct tape. Uh, and, and yeah, I do that. Uh, we do analysis of the Grand Prix uh, on YouTube and also podcast after each race. I usually work with Judith uh, Tomaselli, uh, Tom, uh, Florenza. I always say Judith Tomaselli because she used to work for, anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, Judith Florenza and sometimes with, uh, with Christian Sanchez Marin. So, uh, yeah, we do that in Spanish after every, after every Grand Prix. Well, I'm glad it's in Spanish. Otherwise, you would have been a direct rival, and this would have been your first and last appearance on the Paris Pass podcast. <laughs> so, uh, but, no, in, in all seriousness, it's been fantastic having you on and hearing some of those excellent stories. Well, I listen to you guys. I listen to you guys all the time on my bicycle. When I think of you guys, I think of a vast desert and occasionally a coyote crossing the path. Well, there are a lot of people who think we're a bit of a wasteland, so that's not really surprising. <laughs> yeah. Who's the coyote? <laughs> well, I think we all know the answer to no, that. No, he's not. He's not here. He's 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 off covering Superbike. I've got a bone to pick with him. We disagree on uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You know, we have a Tarantino discussion to take up sometime. But... That's a good film. It's a good film. Yeah, I know, but he didn't think it was the greatest film in the world, you know. He thought it was too long. I, don't, I just don't understand it. How could anything? How could anything that's good ever be too long? Steve also <laughs> likes golf, so we have to kind of excuse him on that. So I hadn't thought of that. Right. Yeah, and just to, just to settle this argument with Steve, Dennis, two thousand and one, yeah. Great Fillmore, a waste of time. Two thousand and one, The Space Odyssey. Yeah, that's a good film. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, like I've been yeah. trying to tell Steve for the past five years. So uh, there's there's two reasons that he's wrong in terms of film opinions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's gonna be he's gonna be annoyed. Yeah. Listen, guys, just to wrap up uh, very quickly, uh, predictions for the weekend. You know who's gonna be you know taking victory at Portimao? Dave, to you first. I'm gonna throw the um you know the the, the pressure straight onto you. Who who are you gonna go for? Well, I generally have no idea. So just for the sake of argument, I'm gonna say Juan Mir. Right. Okay. That's usually my pick, but I thought I'm going to say Jack Miller. You know, after the improved showing in uh, Austin, I, I think, you know, and he had a good race there a couple of years ago on the Pramac. So uh, Miller's going to be my tip. Dennis, who, who do you like for this weekend? I like, uh, I like Mark Marquez. Oh, interesting. Okay. Still Dave's tip for the championship. Uh, I have to underline that fact as well. And mine. And, and, 
Yeah, and Nils. And Neil also likes Andrea Minia from OT3, so we're going to remind him, of course, every <laughs> podcast. Oh, until, real until quick, he... real quick. The one thing you really have to hope for is that Kane, that Aaron Kane wins, because if he wins, he's going to reveal why he wears the bow tie. Exactly. Uh, I I have a theory that he's that there's a curse on that bow tie and he's never going to win a Moto2 race. So we're never going to find out why yeah, he's I've, wearing the bloody uh, bow tie. I have a feeling that it's going to be the most underwhelming reveal in <laughs> Grand Prix history. It'll be like, oh, my dad used to wear a bow tie when I was a kid. Or, you know, something really banal. Let's hope yeah. not. Yeah. It'll finally switch the motor on and it'll start spinning and that's going to be the entire joke. <laughs> Well, let's just hope that Chantra gets back in the part fermé for another interview and, uh, you know, provides another Grand Prix highlight, I have to say. But um, I have oh, yeah. to imagine, I, of course... I know, my, uh, I know my fantasy team is bombing at the moment, Dad, but you're not going to ask for my prediction. I mean, is, is my opinion good for good for now? No, no, I apologise, <laughs> Noah. I skipped over you completely. Um, for anybody who's looking for tips on the Fantasy League team, uh, now's probably <laughs> a time to end the podcast. But otherwise, Neil, go on, tell us. Who do you fancy? Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's really quite shameful. I mean, I'm supposed to be a, a professional in, in very low inverted commas but yeah my fantasy team would uh, prove completely otherwise uh, but I think Alex Rins might be a, a good shot for the win this weekend okay nicely done see if Suzuki can finally get that victory again mm. guys thanks ever so much for talking it's been been a, a good laugh and uh, thank you to everybody for listening and of course Rental Streets check out those handlebars for your street bikes not just for your dirt bikes or your motocross bikes and Fly Racing we'll be back right after Portugal with a quick podcast leading into Jerez this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Okay. A siesta and a sangria. Goodness me, Adam. All right. Sorry, sorry. Very showbiz. <laughs>